This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of Plant Yourself, Well Start Health, and Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an environmentally friendly and epigenetically healthy life. Hey, so I recorded today's interview actually quite a while ago, before uh, COVID-19, before the uprisings for social justice, before a lot of stuff that is dominating the news now. And for various reasons, I hadn't released it until now. It was just basically other things had uh, taken priority. But in looking back, this interview, this conversation is about environmental determinants of health and disease. And those determinants are not scattered randomly around our world, but are heavily determined by race and economic status. Um, and also, you know, the whole COVID-19 thing, we're not sure exactly where it came from, but it certainly looks like sloppy animal agriculture was involved and environments in which people are, um, you know, crammed together certainly spreads the disease more than places where people have lots of space. So for those reasons, I wanted to bring this into the light for you today. My guest today is Richard Kwok. He's an environmental researcher who studies the effects of environmental pollution on human health. And he's also a neighbor of mine. We met while cleaning up litter and quickly discovered a lot of interests in common. So I asked him if he'd come over to the shed to the Sun Studio here and have a conversation with me. We got into the causes of disease and the correlations between certain environmental factors, pollution, lifestyle habits like smoking, even things like getting a bad sunburn as a kid on health. But we also talked about the new methods, the new technologies for assessing health uh, through epigenetics, through how the genes express themselves in our bodies by what they do. And it turns out that there's a brand new science of sort of epigenetic measurement that can look at things like that sunburn you got as a kid and determine maybe how many years that's taken off your life. What's your real clock age uh, as opposed to your calendar age? And so I found all this fascinating. And it also can make a huge difference in terms of public health, public policy, because epidemiologists don't have to wait for you know a, a spill or a pollutant to manifest health consequences 20 30 years from now we can using uh, this dna methylation and histone markers in the blood um, assess pretty quickly what the effects are likely to be downstream and we can do it with a high degree of accuracy and it's only getting better all the time if you want some help with your own health habits, with your health behaviors, so that you can be in alignment, so that your actions align with your values, priorities, and goals, I'd like to help. You can check out plantyourself.com laser to find out all about a year of laser health coaching with me. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. Without further ado, Richard Kwok, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so we, we met, gosh, maybe a, a couple of months ago, and we were talking about, uh, like, litter. You're just a, a new neighbor, and you have this, this property down the street, and you were sort of cleaning it up, and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and um, we, we discovered we have a lot of sort of values and interests in common. Mm -hmm. And um, if you've asked me to describe you as your, your, your overeducated neighbor about um, the environment, mm -hmm. so we'll... Yeah. Uh, Kind of get get, get into like um, first of all, what what have you studied? So give, give us kind of a general picture of your your interests and expertise. Yeah. Well, mainly I study how the environment affects human health, and so like the air you breathe, the water you drink, and so uh, and then how uh, mainly looking at chronic disease outcomes, looking at like cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, and things like that. And so I've been fortunate over my career to be able to look at how um you know for instance i was I, I did a study in inner mongolia china looking at how drinking water arsenic affects pregnant women and their babies uh and currently right now i'm, I'm you know looking at a study looking at how uh, the the deep water horizon oil spill back in 2010 affects um, you know, they ha have any uh, lasting human health effects on the uh, cleanup workers themselves. Mm. Um, 
So I'm interested in this for, for a couple of, of reasons, aside from being like a, you know, trying to be a decent human being on mm-hmm. this planet. But one, you know, one, one reason is that um, a lot of environmentalism is dismissed as sort of sentimental, like, oh, we're going to save what the snail darter or the this or the that. And I love how you're tying it to things that humans care about. Since we're the ones doing the polluting, we, we might as well be really overt about like the the self-inflicted harm we're doing. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and then we can talk about, about both of these, is that it's a little bit full circle for me because when I started working uh, around sort of public health and nutrition and lifestyle, um, one of the things I was trying to convince people of is that we have a lot of control over whether we get heart disease or diabetes or cancer in the face of a media onslaught that kind of made it seem like this was all out of our control. This is all, you know, genetics or solar or um, or pollutants. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I really tried to dismiss the idea of pollution because I was trying to empower people. But mm-hmm. in fact, that was a uh, sort of polemical stance. And in mm-hmm. fact, um, you've discovered that there are big links. Oh, there's huge links in terms of how the environment affects your health. Uh, beyond just what, you know, because like, if you think about it, your genetics don't change, you know, like this is what you're, you know, the cars that you're dealt with. Um, But there's increasingly, uh, as the science has developed, uh, studying the field of epigenetics. And so how, um, you know, the the markers, uh, how how the, the, you know, DNA is encoded and the, how the environment affects how the DNA is expressed. So, and that's the epigenome and that has, the environment has significant impacts on that. And so depending on when these environmental exposures occur as the DNA is, 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 is a writing and, and, and being encoded, it can have lifetime effects, you know, many years down the road. Uh, and, and so this was kind of like the Barker hypothesis that was, um, and, and, and now it's, it's known as the Doha um, uh, hypothesis of so like development origin uh, of uh, health and disease. And, and so it's actually a really fascinating field as to, to looking at how uh, the epigenome and how that, that is, uh, how the DNA is expressed, um, you know, it matters. And, and then, you know, I, I can go on for, for hours on, on talking about how, you know, the, how these markers uh, then later on, um, impact your your um your health outcomes um and how they can be changed and 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 so so these markers then if you for instance like quit smoking you can you can see on these epigenetic markers uh, a visible change in how uh these markers are are affected by health behaviors so how how do we do that i mean i was i just had the image of like you know, like a tree and looking at the rings to see if it's been a rainy year or a dry year. But obviously, we don't want to cut ourselves sagittally. And mm-hmm. and, and so, like, is, if you just take, like, a 23andMe DNA test, is that information encoded there? How do, how do we look at markers? Um, and so mainly it's through, uh, a, you know, looking at DNA methylation and histone markers. So it's looking at blood okay. markers. And so, like, a drop of blood. And then kind of from there, they can do... Uh, uh, you know, fancy. Uh, you know, this is not the technical term, but um, they can can look at gene sequencing and then looking at uh, DNA methylation. They have these, um, you know, 450k chips. Illumina is one of the most popular companies that that have them, and then they run the sequencing through those chips, and then through algorithms, they are able to kind of predict uh, health outcomes, and sometimes better than self-report. And so uh, traditional epidemiologic studies, so traditional studies uh, rely on individuals telling you, oh, I'm a smoker, oh, I'm, you know, I exercise or, or, or I don't, or I get so much sleep per night. Um, and you, it's actually expressed in the epigenome that you can tell um, based on, you know, how well the correlation is <sighs> Uh, whether or not they, they reported or they didn't, it's actually really scary how how well these things predict. And so they have different uh, different markers and 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 how they you know the, and they have different models that 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 um, can predict like um, um, uh, epigenetic age. And so one of the biggest correlations of disease is just chronologic age. 
you know, so how old you are has a direct impact in terms of your risk factors for developing cardiovascular disease or cancers and things like that. But then as we increasingly kind of get a better understanding in terms of the uh, epigenome, you know, looking at how... Um, how epigenetic age and so this, so this is not your chronologic age but then your epigenetic age is in based on impacts from the environment how the um you know your your behaviors the things that you've done kind of kind of can can make you older than your so, chronologic so, age or younger than your so is this the same age. as like telomeres sort of like telomere length Telomere length is is, is, is is something like that. Um, but, you know, this is looking at like histone markers, looking at like DNA methylation and things like that. And so there's a, a it's an increasingly new field. And, and so um, there's not, a, you know, there's not a lot of good, you know, DNA clocks out there. And so there, there's, there's groups now kind of looking at what's the best model, what's the best marker for, um, you know, uh, trying to calculate these ages. And so... Uh, you know, there's like a Horvath model, like a Levine clock. And, and so it, it can kind of predict based on these clocks, uh, your risk factors for disease more accurately than if you just answer a questionnaire saying like, uh, oh, I'm a pack a day smoker or, uh, so this, this is like a global breathalyzer for, for health behaviors. Right, yeah. so, so you can yeah. say no, I didn't have anything to drink, officer. But they can, uh, yeah, but they you... can tell because, like, you know, based on these that that you know you smoked or you had sunburn uh, when you were a kid, and, really? and that's like an increase in these markers, and it makes these changes that that last, and sometimes it can be intergenerational. And so there's these really interesting studies looking at like mouse models, how um, you know that, that they have these epigenetic changes, then then they can go from generation to generation, even though your genetics don't change your your gen your, your genes are, are set you know uh -huh. it doesn't change at all but your epigenome how 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 your how it is expressed changes based on your diet based on your environment and, and so that then can, can change your 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 epigenetic clock and so you could be you know your 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 chronologic age could be a set number but then your epigenetic age could be higher or lower based on that. And then that changes your risk factors for developing disease. Uh -huh. and, 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 and right now we, we don't know well enough these, these, you know, so there's all these different models out there. Um, so I mentioned like Horvath and Levine, and then there's like this new model called grim age just came out in January, you know? And so, so they're showing out these different uh -huh. predictors and, and really is kind of like a proof of concept in terms of like, can we do this? You know, like, can so we... I'm, I'm imagining that, uh, like, you know, Bezos and uh, and the Google guys are real interested in this because they're you know they're all sort of pushing for health. Is this something that's going to get turned over to big data to to kind of come up with this you know this actuarial model that is is going to you know in their eyes completely rationalize healthcare potentially potentially yeah you can use these clocks but anyway it's like how well does it predict and so right now there's not enough data right now in terms of being able to model and so we're looking at these large-scale human stu studies and looking at these large cohorts of people to kind of see you know to, to refine the model you know and mm -hmm. so can we based on you know taking these samples look at these epigenetic ages and then be able to predict that that you know you have these risk factors and so you can modify it based on your diet based on your other behavioral things that you individually can do um you know but then some things you can't do like you know the things you know uh you know depending on your ses your your different Which lifestyle factors so socioeconomic so, status yeah exactly it's like some things that you can change but like it, you know other people may not be as fortunate or well-resourced that you can't move to a different environment you can't change these things and so some of these things are locked in that and then they have lifelong impacts that carry on through so like from flint michigan you have these individuals uh, a whole generation of kids that have been exposed to very high levels of lead in their drinking water and there's you know decades of studies of how how negatively that affects them through throughout their entire life and and that that has really serious impacts um you know so so things like that that um you know that that, that can be modified All right so so there's an issue of of just fairness so if i am a, of a socioeconomic 
class and I have resources and I can get my organic produce and I can, you know, I don't have to work outside all day and smog, then I think, okay, I've, I've taken care of things for my health. But I think we have a, a responsibility mm-hmm. to, you know, sort of that, that uh, was a John Rawls theory of justice, mm-hmm. right? That um, I think the basic idea, I didn't read his like 700 page book, but I think mm-hmm. the, ba- the basic idea was that if you want a system of justice, imagine that you're, you're going to be a random human being placed on this earth. Would you, would you, want, would you be okay at any, at any node in the system? Mm-hmm. Or are there places where you just wouldn't want to be? And if so, that's an indication of injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So environmental justice EJ issues are, you know, super important too, you know, in terms of different communities, especially these uh, uh, lower socioeconomic uh, economic, uh, communities have been more negatively impacted by pollution. Uh, you know, those living, you know, on the you know, borders of, uh, of these large industrial farms and confined animal feeding operations in, in eastern North Carolina, there are, you know, significant EJ issues that are around mm-hmm. the country, a lot of examples that, um, you know, that, that then, and then depending, like, like with the, um, the epigenetic clocks and the Doha hypothesis, depending on the timing of the exposures, matters uh and so, so what, what do you mean by the timing like in terms of like how old you are when it happens yes yeah. yeah so so like the doha hypothesis basically is like the development origin so like if you had a, a infant in or or a mother a pregnant woman in utero as your systems are forming uh you know you could get these environmental insults that have they could have significantly more impact than if you know the if as compared to an adult who you know, those systems aren't forming yet or have already formed. And, and, and so depending on the timing and the dosage, it can have very significant lifelong impacts depending on, on when, the, when they are exposed. And, and then, um, you know, uh, Cheryl Walker, who um, had, had, uh, is, is um, looking at some of the epigenetic plasticity, uh, showed that, you know, some some mouse models that 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 had been exposed at a certain time in utero, you know, so so while the fetus was in the womb, uh, and then everything else was the same, but then they changed the diet as adults had dramatically different health outcomes than 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 a, a litter of 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 mice that had not been exposed at that time, and so so really, even though they're exposed to the exact same diet, you know later on in life that that because of this environmental insult at a critical stage of development then later on had these dramatic impacts mm-hmm. because they changed the diet and so nothing that you 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 would know uh you know because like these are just mice in general and and, and but then because of the strain the two strains that one strain was ex, ex, was not exposed and one strain was Later on down the line, everything else, all else being equal, this diet then dramatically affected the cardiovascular health outcomes of these of huh. these mice. Meaning that if we're looking at so so far, our sort of health um, research has largely been, at least at a population level, has been looking at averages. Mm-hmm. Like like what is the effect of a plant based diet on cardiovascular health? And so we're looking at this what essentially is you know, all these different groups. And we're just we're then taking the average as opposed to saying that, that this particular group that had this particular early childhood set of experiences, developmental um, factors mm-hmm. could be affected much more than others mm-hmm. so that we, we can actually make much more specific and useful predictions about who could be helped by certain lifestyle changes, by certain medicines, yeah. as opposed as opposed to just taking the average. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of like the goal. But right now, it's like, you know, we don't know enough in terms of how these things are expressed. What markers are we looking for that are associated with these things? And so right now, it's a very, this is a super new field. And and, and, and so that, that that's what we're moving into. But it requires a lot of data, a lot, you know, huge numbers of people. And, and, and it's very uh, expensive to run these 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 epigenetic markers. And so these models are still being developed. Like I said, that, that, that grim age model just came out in January. And uh-huh. so they haven't had a chance to kind of like really run it through his paces and, and have other groups looking at 
how valid these models are. But, you know, increasingly, you know, hopefully in, you know, that's kind of the goal, like precision medicine, you know, that yeah. we're able to kind of tailor based on your specific, you know, profile recommendations that can impact your health based on what's expressed not your genetics per se but your epigenetics mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah so i th- yeah there's promise and there's also like scary parts of that to me so one you know one thing that i've seen is that if a lot of funding is required the funding comes from people who can make a buck on it so so, yeah, well, well, so I'm, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm concerned that this is going to be used for targeted ninety thousand dollar a month therapies, as opposed to targeted lifestyle suggestions. Which you know, nobody makes money by telling someone else to eat more broccoli and mm-hmm. and you know less hamburgers and ring dings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you're right that that there is a potential to commercialize these things, and so there are companies out there that uh could could do it but you know a lot of this is funded through basic science research through the national institutes of health um so that's like you as a u.s taxpayer are are paying for some of these things and so what how that gets translated into therapies i think you know that that's beyond my pay grade and uh-huh. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well let's 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 talk about the um some of the findings themselves i remember reading in a book about i think a scottish famine mm-hmm. and how like they were finding three generations later the mm-hmm. effects um yeah like do we understand how this how this works or, or why it works there there are some bio like i said like these epigenetic changes that leading to biochemical changes in your body that then are are encoded uh, in, in the in, in your DNA expression, so these epigenetics is really cool. Like to look at, and the data support it. You know, and so you can look at like the like the Scottish famine. You can look at these other events that happen to entire populations, and then look at them at health outcomes 20, 30, 40 years later down the road, and almost with like eerily precision, be able to predict based on these events what happens, regardless of what else they have done. In the meantime, and so right now, I think they're working on the model to try to refine. And so it's like, what, how can we change so that, you know, at an individual level, what can your your primary care physician uh, recommend you do that can have an impact that, you know, because like some of it's baked in the cake, you know, like your genetics are what they are, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you have like the you know, BRCA1 gene and, you know, th- that you're you're at an increased risk, but there's things that you can do as an individual that can impact those, mm-hmm. you know, and how those genes are expressed. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other cynical thought I have is that we kind of know what the good things to do are. Mm-hmm. And it seems like almost like um, superfluous. To come up with a model to to say like these are the this is the thing you know these are all the things you should do but these are the things you really should do because we've spent you know billions of dollars developing models like you know you should you should eat more uh, fiber and and fewer less saturated fat and sugar but you should really eat more fiber and- yeah but I think it's like you know in general it's like you know diet and exercise obviously are are, are beneficial to you and so but sometimes like I said they're they're there are structural fat, structural obstacles to prevent individuals from doing these things. And so then as uh, from public health standpoint, are there policies that, that we can put in place, for instance, you know, like early childhood education or paid maternal leave or things like that, that can ease and make it easier for individuals to make these choices. And, and so... Um, you know, if you live in in these under-resourced areas, you may not be able to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so then are there programs that, that, that uh, from a public health standpoint, are we able to then provide to these communities access to fresh fruits and vegetables that we know has a direct impact on health outcomes? And it's significantly cheaper to, you know, prevention than treatment. Yeah, it's significantly. So, so, do you think of things like the the water in Flint and the lack of fresh produce in food deserts and the Blackwater oil spill kind of as the same types of things? What, oh, what do you mean? Um, like as a, as as a public health researcher, it's, it seems like like you you have a 
uh, a 35,000 foot view of this that can kind of equate various public health issues where I would think of them as very, very differently. But it sounds like you're almost saying that these are all... It's all interrelated, you know, yeah. in in a sense that, you know, I, I think, you know, conceptually, you know, I, I look at the environment as everything outside of the body, you know, and so, mm-hmm. but then there are things that you can control and some things you can't control. And so then from a public health standpoint, those things you can't control, how can we make policies, make regulations and, and things like that to to lessen the burden so that to protect the public health, to improve human health and, and have a better quality of life, um, you know, beyond, you know, what what is, you know, so, so you know, humans, you know, as, as an epidemiologist, you know, humans are going to eat what they're going to eat. They're going to smoke what they're going to smoke. They're going to do what they're going to do, you know, but then are there choices that you can kind of provide for them to make it easier to facilitate that 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 gives them a pathway for a healthier happier life mm-hmm. so. right and i guess the, one of the issues is okay so people can choose their own food except you know i was just i was um, interviewing a guy who's involved in um a fort worth uh, trying to resolve food deserts. He says, mm-hmm. no, there's people who can't choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they can choose from 101 different convenience stores, mm-hmm. but they yeah. can't find fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the fresh fruits and vegetables are significantly more expensive, potentially, than you know, your, your, your junk food or, or these prepackaged foods that are you know, very inexpensive, but nutritionally of zero value. Mm-hmm. Right. So, 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 it's, it, 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 and, and so that that is a problem, you know. And so, are there policies in place? Can we do things then that can that can facilitate them getting ac- improved access to the things? But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's up to the individual to to decide whether or not they, you know, want to pay the you know whatever thirty cents for the you know sugary cola or you know the dollar for the you know clean water and and apple kind of thing right so i remember one of the first um public health classes i took in graduate school um the the professor really wanted to disillusion us (laughs) and because we were all going in there like we're going to help people change their behaviors and Mm -hmm. she showed us this uh this study of um i think it was from the 70s about uh, deadly falls from apartment buildings in New York City mm-hmm. and first showed all these different public education campaigns, health mm-hmm. education campaigns to, for parents to watch their toddlers, to make sure the windows are closed and how none of it did, made any difference. And then the city mandated bars, mm-hmm. window bars, mm-hmm. and then the number of deaths plummeted to practically zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And saying like, basically, if you want people to change their behavior, you have to create an environment in which it's almost impossible to do the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean that—that's kind of like the human psychology is a little beyond my field. So I don't want to, you know. Right, but but if you're talking about things like the water in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. it's impossible for people to do the right thing. Right, it's impossible for pe- for people to get healthy drinking water if there's no healthy drinking water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So right. so. Yeah, yeah, it, it it makes it difficult, and you know, and so, so in in this society in, in twenty nineteen, you know, there are things that you can do and things you can't, and some things are more political than others. You know, there's a lot of underlying competing causes that that you know ultimately lead some with good intentions and some with not so good intentions that right. that that lead us down there, and and so you would hope that people are you know, good and, and, and try to do the right thing. But, um, you know, the, some of that's kind of, you know, beyond right. what, uh, you know, we as researchers then are just kind of like here, you know, here are the things that we know, here are the things we don't know and kind of present it to them so that they can make their own decision. Right. But see, a lot, a lot of the, when we're talking about politics, a lot of that discussion is, around sort of rights and responsibilities as if, you know, I have to be a good person because there's people out there who are going to be, you know, who are going to suffer or not, but it's not going to come back to me, right? I mean, that, that could be true or not, depending on the time frame. but public health kind of pokes that in the eye, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, the whole, the whole basis of public health was sort of, you know, the, the, the cholera-laced, you know, mm-hmm. water yeah. pumps. Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about things like vaccines and we talk about things like, 
you know, persistent organic pollutants or uh, endocrine disruptors. And, and you know, I've been reading lately about basically the, our, the human, the traditional human microbiome as an endangered species. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like this, it seems like the world's getting very, very small and that these things that seem to be far away are actually just around the corner for most of us. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, 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 you know, the, the, as we increase our understanding, you can see how interrelated everything is, you know, in terms of how your diet affects your microbiome and how that affects your epigenetic. And then like looking at the environment that you, you know, you live in, uh, and, and there's, it's very interconnected. And so you have to kind of take a little more holistic, you know, you, you got to have to step back a little bit to kind of look at the big picture. Um, and, and sometimes we focus on these minute things that, in the end may or may not matter, you know? And so like, it's a huge issue. And when you kind of look at the micro level, but sometimes you have to kind of take a step back and then like the, so what, you know, what does this all mean? And and that's a very difficult question to answer because sometimes it's, it involves many other collaborators and, and, and actors that have to come together. And then ultimately some, the goals have to align, you know, like you have to, and, 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 there are competing interests, just like competing causes of disease. There are competing interests coming in and some good and some not so good, you know? And, and, and so how does this in the end work out? And so this is kind of more of like a philosophical question, but then actually has, you know, how you apply it, it has like direct impacts on health outcomes. Yeah. And but you can, we can also see that there's certain um, directions that are better than others. So you talked about you know the con- the confined animal feeding operations in uh, in North Carolina that are environmental disasters and are leading to epigenetic harm to the people who live there. And then you can say, well, you know, like the outcome of that is lots of this factory farmed meat that people are eating, you know, could a thousand miles away, and it's bad. It's bad on every level. Plus, it's polluting the water supply. Right. And uh, drawing down aquifers and mm-hmm. creating algal bloom and all like yeah. like thing, things that are bad are bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, contributing to climate change and, and, and things like that, you know. So so there, there are a lot of residual effects, you know, from these decisions that that, you know, that 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 I think humans are really, you know, like really thinking of things in the abstract and the counterfactual are very very difficult for people to kind of conceptualize say what what do you mean by that um and so it's like you know what if like you know so so the counterfactual model is that you know uh uh, uh, you know looking at an alternative reality you know like an alternative Mm -hmm. circumstance or alternative set of things that happen so if this didn't happen then this you know Mm -hmm. And, and so drawing on these two two things it's like this is my reality but then the counterfactual is like this is my alternate reality if these things didn't happen or these things and how your life and, 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 and how the environment and other factors change based on that thing. And, and it's really, really difficult for people to kind of conceptualize beyond kind of what they know in their little bubble, you know? And so uh-huh. you have these stereotypes, you have these things that are built in based on your experiences and how you perceive reality. And then, you know, you have these alternates that, you know, that that require you to kind of think outside the box. And, and then if these things, you know, if I was looking at it from a different perspective, you know, that, that this is how the reality looks and it uh-huh. may or may not change. And so this is very, very philosophical. Well, it's, it sounds like I'm, I'm just thinking that I've never been a huge science fiction fan, but it seems like that's the probably the purpose of science fiction to sort of, you know, marinate our brains in counterfactuals and possibilities. So when people like you come up with science, and say, hey, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you, here's what we learned, mm-hmm. that it doesn't meet with so much resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think people are, you know, I, I, there's a really interesting like behavioral economics and how, you know, Dan Arlily at Duke is, is fascinating in terms of all, all the things that you do. Is like you can very easily predict how people behave in, in, in different situations. And, and, and sometimes they act you know, according to how you would predict, and sometimes they don't, and, 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 you know, trying to understand the science behind it, you know, can drive, you know, whole fields, marketing, advertising, these are all things to try to get you to change your behaviors, 
with economic outcomes, you know, yeah. attached to it. And so, so as a public health researcher, you know, it's like, what can we do from a public health standpoint to, to, to impact health outcomes, you know, yeah. and so in, in, in so an individual level. Who do you think of as the consumer of your research? Is it the public? Is it government officials at a certain level? Is it other academics? Um, I think all of the above, you know, in terms of like the impacts that, that, that we would like to, you know, directly, it's kind of scientists talking to other scientists, you know, and so it's like, you know, do we reach a consensus? And ultimately, if, you know, everyone in the room says, oh, yeah, this, we're, we're, we, we found this finding and we repeated it in different populations around the world and we're all seeing the same thing, then it, it goes from an association to, you know, I don't want to say a causality, but, but, you know, because there's a really high bar to, to, to make, but then it kind of like the consensus moves or shifts along that continuum from an association to a cause. And then when you get to that stage, then, then you can kind of say, Hey, you know, to the policymakers, to the public, like these are things that like, you know, we know have a strong effect on, you know, these health outcomes. And then, you know, here's what you should do, like kind of the, so what, and that's the message from the research side to the applied side you know like how do you apply this knowledge now that you have you know and so and then there's the ethics of should you apply it you know like do you know how do you you know now that you know that you know these environmental justice issues are standing what do you do about it you know like how do you advocate for change how do you advocate change working with community groups and things like that you know so so it's it's a big continuum of 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 you know how how it's impacting and and so different people are more comfortable with you know staying on one side of the fence or the other but you know ultimately it's it's very interrelated and and it's all these different fields come in and the nice thing about what i love about public health is that it 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 draws on all these different disciplines it draws on statistics it draws on biochemistry it draws on biology draws on economics and and it kind of pulls it all together and ultimately hopefully to you know do good Mm mm-hmm yeah, and so you know, you mentioned like the the continuum of proof from like you know sort of hunch to hypothesis to correlation to something approaching causality, mm-hmm. and like you know the question is like at what level do we act on it? Like there's different uh, mm-hmm. you know criteria for a criminal trial or a civil trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about um, someone I know, Carolyn Raffensberger, who has written about the precautionary principle. Mm-hmm. Like, we should not act until we have proven that lead in the water is okay. Like, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's the, that's the burden of proof. We shouldn't have to prove mm-hmm. that, that doing something harmful, you know, unnatural and seemingly harmful to the earth and to people mm-hmm. is, is harmful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, so you, you said you worked on research on the, the Blackwater Oh, deep water, yeah. Deep, deep water, mm-hmm. oil spill. Mm-hmm. So, what did you what did you discover when you looked at the people who were affected? Um, so, so we, we, we found some um, you know uh, symptoms uh, more acutely looking at like mental health outcomes, so depression, anxiety, PTSD. It was more associated with those who had worked on the spill than those who had not. Uh, also, some respiratory defects of those who have been exposed to dispersants. Uh, had shown other uh, eye irritation and other symptoms, and so and the dispersants were the things that were like sprayed on living things to get the oil off. Um, no, not just the living th- uh, things, but to to the oil in the environment itself to kind of mm-hmm. uh, break the surface tension and then kind okay. of break up the the large amounts of oil. So it's like this giant detergent. To, to get the oil out of whatever it was in. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So, so this was so this was this wasn't the oil itself. This was a, a, a chemical a chemical that was was applied and mixed in with the oil plume to to dissipate the oil and, and then let the, you know uh, you know the environment then naturally decompose uh-huh. and degrade it. But you know uh-huh. it, there's been a lot of studies there shown that it didn't work as well as folks thought and then there's these large you know plumes of underwater oil that have been now settled onto the bottom of the gulf of mexico and 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 so there there are some residual effects and so you know we're looking at that and how these mixtures and how they impact um human health and and so Mm -hmm. we're still kind of underway in terms of those um those studies but unfortunately it takes time to 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 go through and we'd like to provide an answer um to individuals who are impacted these communities really want to know 
uh, how they're impacted. And but the, the the problem is also is like we have difficulty in terms of reaching these individuals and getting them to continue to participate mm. because a lot of individuals think, oh, I'm healthy, I I don't feel anything, and so I'm not going to bother answering the call. Uh, when we call them to answer, you know, ask them some questions about their health and, and what, they've, mm-hmm. what they've done. But that's actually super valuable to to get them to to say, hey, I'm, I'm totally healthy, all good. It speaks to base rates. It speaks to base rates, yeah. Or, or you know, but uh, unfortunately, it's like, you know, if we lose a lot of individuals to follow up, you know, it's kind of like a loss to follow up thing. And it's like, so the, the, the health, we don't know what happens to them. And so there's no information and so then they're not able to be counted, mm-hmm. and so so then then your your study is 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 not as strong as it was if you can get more people to participate. So right now mm-hmm. we have a lot of efforts to try to reach out to these communities all, all along the Gulf Coast to say it's like if if you have participated in the study, um, uh, please answer the call and, and, and tell us you know what you've been experiencing what you know it may or may not be related or you think it may or may not be related to the health outcomes yeah. but you know it's, it's still important yeah. to, to to know is one of the issues i'm imagining that people who live there who have been lied to by companies who've been lied to and disregarded and disrespected by the government and you come in and in, in a semi-official capacity that you get lumped in with them is there is there an approach to kind of have local communities kind of run the study so that they, they feel like they're in charge and you're serving them as opposed to some data bank somewhere? Yeah, no, it's really important to try to work with community, trusted community members. Uh, so it's kind of like a community-based participatory research as so the CBPR, which is that, that really kind of like talking with community members, working with representatives, uh, and then giving back to the community in terms of they want to know what data what results you found and so they don't want to they're not going to you know look at the scientific journals and whatnot people are busy uh and and so so going back to the community reporting the results and you know we send newsletters emails uh text messages and things like that to them it's like here's links to stories and and here's some of our findings and what what we found but again it's like the most important thing for these individuals is that they have to keep telling us like and continue to participate in the study so that they don't get lost and, and then their story gets lost because we're not able to reach them. Uh, and so if they can continue to participate in these things, I, we understand that they're super busy, but you know, some of these questions only take five minutes. Yeah. And so five minutes of your time then provides you valuable information for, for us to continue to provide uh, um, relevant data for their communities and say like, Hey, these are the things you need to look out for so that then, Later on, you know, we can talk to the politicians and whatnot and then provide resources to these communities to address those needs. But if we don't know what those needs are, mm-hmm. it's going to get forgotten. So we, we, at the very beginning, we were talking about these epigenetic markers and histones and things you can find from a simple blood test. Is any of that being done, say, with, with the deep water folks? Yeah. Because uh, it seems to me like when I work with someone and they get a blood test or they get, you know... Mm-hmm. They could do their blood pressure. They have a number mm-hmm. that yeah. can kind of motivate them in a more serious way than a general discussion or, mm-hmm. or sort of vague symptoms. Yeah. Um, what? What? You know. Yeah. So, so we're looking at like DNA marker, uh, DNA methylation in uh, in our cohort and looking at respiratory markers. And so we have lung function testing on some of these uh, on a small po- a portion of the individuals, and then we're able to kind of predict based on. DNA markers, whether or not their lung function is negatively affected. A lot of people were complaining of shortness of breath and wheezing and cough and, and other uh, negative uh, respiratory symptoms. And then are we able to then kind of take these, these findings and then, then tie it to these DNA methylation markers? And so mm. that then we can then look at the entire individual that we don't even have data on and then be able to predict so that then we can provide resources to them to, to address those issues. But if we don't do the study, if they don't answer the calls, we can't run those studies because sure. because it's just missing data. Sure. And so that's why it's so important for those individuals that haven't answered the um, you know the questionnaires to you know answer the questionnaire. Yeah. And and we try to make it really easy for them that it's available online. It's available you know through you know people we've been trying to call them you know but people move they change and it's really difficult to follow individuals um younger individuals who are you know otherwise healthy people are just busy yeah. um it, yeah. so i'm curious if you found any um 
epigenetic markers related to depression, anxiety, PTSD? Or is it just that they were in the, you know, the center of the trauma? Well, I mean, we haven't looked there yet, so those studies are underway, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so 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 we are are interested in that. And, and that, that following disasters, uh, the the mental health effects oftentimes are the most acute, and they come up the most quickly. Whereas the chronic effects, a lot of people aren't worried about cancers and things like that develop. Those take many years. Uh, the 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 uh, you know, you know so, so, so that we have to continue to follow them for you know, 5, 10, 15 years out before we can see plausibly that you know, your exposure to this singular event in 2010 now is impacting you 10 years later. Uh, and and so, so hopefully with these studies that we're running, looking at DNA methylation, are we able to then kind of shorten that time period so that we can say, well, based on these models, we can predict mm-hmm. five, 10 years in the future. And then are there things that we can change so that these negative outcomes don't occur? Right, right. And I guess, you know, when I think about the mental health effects, uh, I'm also thinking long term. So, you know, my mother is a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. And so I know for myself, there's, there's a lot of crazy in me that, that I didn't, you know, Mm-hmm. cause myself that just sort of like you know passed down yeah, um, yeah you know along with the family photo albums and stuff <laughs> um and i know there's been some some research on you know it seems, it seems like that that would also be mediated by epigenetics mm-hmm. right certain t- um tendencies mm-hmm. towards um you know, either, you know anxiety or say let's say hypervigilance mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so some, some of this is behavioral that's kind of like uh, built in uh, you know, some of it's genetics, you know, that they have a tendency for it, but then based on your upbringing or the, you know, kind of like the nature versus nurture uh, mm-hmm. argument and the things that can change, but then how we study it is, and then it's this new field that, you know, looking at the epigenome and how things are expressed and then look at these histone markers, these, these DNA methylation markers, then are we able to, based on these measurements, be able to predict what would happen and so it's a really fascinating field uh that that, that's being developed right now um and so it's kind of like still still nascent um but but shows a lot of promise in trying to integrate you know the microbiome looking at at the environmental markers these behavioral markers and things like that and then kind of putting it all together gotcha i know you have a hard stop probably right about now so I want to thank you, Richard, for, for enlightening me and mm-hmm. for uh, enlightening the listeners to this, uh, this new field. We'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, hopefully it was helpful and, and happy to uh, talk with you. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. That was eye-opening, was it not? Sure was for me. I hope you found it useful. Bunch of references in the show notes. Today's episode is plantyourself.com slash 412. That's plantyourself.com slash 412. So a couple of announcements. First one is I've started a new podcast with my uh, coach training business partner, Kevin Davis. The podcast is called the Health Coaches Podcast. We just launched this week on all the major podcast platforms. And I would love it if you're interested in becoming a health coach or in using health coaching as part of your profession, let's say as a doctor or dietitian or nurse or a physician's assistant or something like that. Or if you're already a health coach and you just like to um, hear what we're up to and pick up maybe some new strategies and and uh, modalities and tools along the way, just uh, do a search wherever you get your podcast for the Health Coaches Podcast uh, with me, Howard Jacobson, and Kevin Davis. So do us a huge favor if you have a chance to go in and rate and review and download, especially in these early days. I think that's how we're supposed to game the podcast system, just get a lot of people excited. So it'd be great if you listen, but even if you just, you know, play it to your dog when you go out for uh, for a walk and go for go to work or something like that, that would actually help us, uh, strangely enough. Other thing is, reminder that there is uh, pandemic pricing available. It's uh, pay from the heart for a year of unlimited laser coaching, short sessions with me via telephone. And that uh, pay from the heart rate means that you pay uh, a number that's comfortable for you. It also has to work for me. So I'm setting a minimum at $83 a month. But from there on up, uh, if you're interested, we can work together. 
So we've got some huge garden news. We put in an irrigation system. It was much easier than I thought it was going to be. My neighbor Gary came over and uh, showed us how it works and what to order. We placed the order. It arrived, and my wife has been uh, fixing the, the little lead lines to the main line. And it's amazing to be able to just go turn a switch in the morning instead of having her spend hours, literally hours a day, watering the beds. So hopefully this will lead to a revolution in the productivity and uh, fun that we get from the garden. In running news, I did a sub eight mile. I was running with my buddy Eamon, and he was saying very interesting things, and he kept speeding up. So I had to do so the same to uh, to stay with him. So I am picking up the pace. And I've asked uh, the people in my family to make me fun running playlists on Spotify. So I'm using those instead of books on tape. And I find it it, uh, it can drop 30 to 45 seconds per mile from my time. I'm still not doing long runs. I'm still keeping it under, say, eight to 10 miles, usually six, but definitely uh, feeling pretty strong and starting to get some cardio back. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful West African Kara music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Vic Leia Stoller, Callan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew Josinas, Sarah Durkis, Rambus Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wynn Patterson, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzek, Janet Baum, Gail Lasser, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Toro Novizov. Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Laella, Isha Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Yacht, Home Hedegaard, Issa Connie Hainline. Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Shara, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen Joe Krebs, Shutania Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, and Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino. Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trisha Adams, Ian Craner, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullish, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael K, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parn Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Margaret Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Cesaroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings. Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Nayak for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>